Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Our next guest is real estate veteran Joe Scorisi. Joe has a bachelor's degree in accounting and finance from Rutgers University. He is a senior mortgage loan officer with First Trust Bank. Joe also specializes in business development and networking. A quick Google of Joe and Eventbrite will turn up nearly 300 current and past events. Not only does Joe host a lot of events, they vary in topics as well. From kitchen trends for real estate flippers to capitalization on tax reform and many more topics. Joe, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. I appreciate the invite. Of course. So let's jump into it. I have to admit, you might be the most entrepreneurial lender that we've known. You're involved in a ton of different areas, including brokerage and running promotional events. Could you please give us a high-level overview of the adventures you're involved in? Well, you know, some people say I might have a slight addiction, you know, in regards to events. I coordinate currently eight events a month in the Philadelphia market. One is on Saturdays, and the others are scattered throughout the Philadelphia market. I consult on two events on behalf of South Jersey investors a month. So I'm really involved anywhere between uh, 10 to 12 events of real estate education, networking, and opportunity events. Nothing really being sold at the events, just licensed or true real estate professionals presenting on a specific subject to hopefully give a sliver of education to these MDs. So let's pivot back to real estate. I want to know how you got started with the business and what gets you most excited about it. Well, there's some good and bad things how I got started. I became a licensed banker. Well, I became a licensed realtor actually in 1987 in New Jersey and PA. I took the classes actually with my mom, and I kind of held on to the licenses in escrow. Never really did anything with it per se. I got my license in banking in 2001. Been only working for direct lending, banking sources, or banks since then. And back in 2001, I was obviously I was in another career. I was an auditor for the state of New Jersey, and I was doing some accounting as a subcontractor, auditing a bank down in downtown New York, and I was part of running out of there out of 9-11, and I was pretty freaked out, and I kind of like just made the decision, this is the time to make a move. I had ownership in various real estate in North Jersey, and felt comfortable to make the move to be a licensed banker because I was comfortable putting the application together and figured it wouldn't be that bad. You know, you go through some painful growth areas, but I learned the business. And at this point, I'm doing close to $30 million in residential lending mortgages a year. I'm involved with referrals of commercial real estate for the bank and referring business to the bank. We have a great commercial division as well. I really love what I do. I enjoy helping people figure out the best way to make the most with their money and equity in the property. Yeah, I mean, with your schedule, Joe, you really do have to love what you do, and that's always great to hear. Time management is everything. We're going to get into that a little bit down the line, but that's great to hear. So the market seems frothy, and there's a lot of capital out there. What deals are getting approved fastest, and what are the hardest deals you're seeing getting approved? You know, what I'm seeing in the market is getting a little 
interesting because the rates are coming down and the feds are discussing dropping a rate two more times by the end of this year. You're starting to see inventory moving up because the inventory that's available is either really not that good or there's some issues going on. I'm seeing more the conventional buyer getting accepted offers than the government, meaning FHA, USDA, VA buyers. They're getting outbidded because the conventional buyer can go a little higher, credit's a little better, and their reserve base to put down on a property is better. They can put three or 5% down and take less of a seller assist in closing costs to thus get the property instead of somebody taking, putting three and a half percent down, asking for more seller assist than just the 6% and also having MI mortgage insurance on the mortgage. So it kind of almost outbids themselves of some of these transactions. So in my experience, I'm seeing more conventional financing opportunities being presented and being approved. So let's talk about hard and private money lenders. What kind of rate and what kind of leverage are you seeing in this space? Well, looking at space, there's so much structural lending money out there and it's so well advertised. So it's not like you can't find anybody anymore. Like you have to go down some dark alley, you know, talk to a couple of bikers and find money like that. It's very much in the forefront of real estate investing. I would say whether you're new, meaning newer, but you have money in good credit or have money and experience, your cost of your money is going to range anywhere between 9% interest only and 12% interest only, along with at least three points as what I'm seeing when I'm taking the refinances of these properties, you know, on behalf of the hard money lenders. I have a very good relationship with those lenders because I have really good refinance products for investors here at the bank. And that's really what I'm seeing. I'm seeing one-year terms, but I'm seeing people more holding the properties more so than flipping. Because again, if you're not buying, you make money when you buy. By the time you're done with all the work and there's a lack of good general contracting right now, so things are a little slower getting things done, I'm seeing more people holding than flipping this past quarter. That's interesting. And now, Joe, for the people that don't know, you said three points. Can you elaborate on that, please? So typically a hard money or construction lender, what they do is they go up to 70% loan of value based on completed value or appraised value. They go 80% loan of cost on purchase, 100% LTC on the rehab. So you've got to have at least 20% on the purchase side plus closing costs. The three points are leaned against the loan amount. So say it's 200000 that's $6,000 extra in closing costs, plus the 20% on the purchase amount of the piece of real estate. It's all got to kind of drive together under 70% loan to value based on completed value. So most people are trying to identify blighted or need properties that need a rehab or new construction at anywhere between 60 and 65 cents, 60 to 65% loan to value on a completed value. So it leaves some room for them for refinance possibilities if they don't sell the home or the property. So it gives them an opportunity to bring that property into the rental market area. Arena. Okay, that makes sense. So investors need to know that their private lenders will be at the closing table with the funds. What questions should investors ask potential private money lenders so they can feel comfortable that the lender will perform? Are they requesting an appraisal, an official appraisal to be done? Are they running it off of comps through the MLS? How are the draw schedules are set up for them to get the renovation money done? 
You know, how much money does somebody need? Say they have a $50,000 budget. Am I coming up with the, I'm the borrower. Am I coming up with the first draw of $10,000? Or are you giving me the money at closing? These are important things to know because your GC is only going to work if they have money. They're not going to work if you're not paying. So there's some questions there. And getting a good licensed contractor, specifically like if you're going to go in with Philadelphia County, you better have a very good licensed contractor. You better have a licensed expediter for you if you need a permit to be pulled. And there's about 82 of them out of there on the market. So you're a good licensed expediter. You're going to need a good builder's risk insurance agent. And your agent, your real estate agent, needs to be transactional. You know, a non-transactional realtor just going through the motions is not the best realtor to have in your bullpen. You need somebody that understands the neighborhoods. Philadelphia specifically is run by neighborhoods, where in New Jersey, it's community. So if you have somebody that knows the, the, the breakdowns of the school district neighborhood in New Jersey, the communities in New Jersey, comparatively to the neighborhoods where the price points are changed in the Philly, that's the kind of realtor you need. And then also having a loan officer understands a lot of these newer terms that are out there, bird strategy, house hacking, you know, fix and flip, fix and hold. I just had Temple University where I've credited CE classes for realtors. I'm putting together a fix and flip, fix and hold class. Because these newer realtors don't really, really understand what it all takes. Can you tell us a little bit more about the class? Well, it's still in the preliminary stages. They're working on it. I teach some continuing ed classes on behalf of Temple University in Philadelphia. I'm also licensed in continuing ed in teaching for real estate agents in New Jersey and PA in lending fundamentals and hopefully, knock on wood, it's going to be social media fundamentals. I'm a licensed banker with the residential lending, so it's a compliment to that. It's a good way for me to segue myself in front of realtors. Joe, you mentioned draw schedule. Can you break that down for some of the people that might not know about it? Say the construction is $50,000, the estimate, and say that you need $10,000 a draw to pay the contractor upon completion of work. You're not paying ahead of contractors. That's when they pick up and disappear on you and not finish the work. You need to keep them accountable for work completed to be paid. And that's how a draw schedule is drawn up to see how that works. Most of the time, people are putting up some money of their own to start the first draw request and recover that on the first request once they completed that work, once it's inspected by an inspector, the hard money lender. So what's a good way to get started in real estate if you don't have any money of your own to invest? I would say get your license in real estate and learn the terms and then the, uh, the wherewithal of the market with, a, with an active office. That's going to potentially give you an opportunity to learn and be trained and understand how to be a real estate agent. You never, you know, a fellow human never ceases to disappoint one another. So well, might as well depend on yourself to find opportunities, whether for yourself or fellow investors, by being licensed. It has never gotten in my way of being a real estate professional, being licensed in real estate. Can you explain how private asset-based lenders operate versus traditional lenders? Well, asset-based lending, just the term, is based on the asset, not the individual. But then my question would go back to the exit strategy to that loan. I mean, somebody needs to eventually put a mortgage on it. Or, you know, oh, we'll just flip the property. Well, if you went upside down on the property and the project's upside down and you're owed more money, you can't potentially sell it. So, you know, asset-based lending has kind of went, kind of has gone by the wayside for the most part. 
asset based lending to me would be a, a colleague that's willing to lend you money that you're both colleagues and you know each other and you're willing to give X dollars and hold the money out more than one year, more like a private mortgage than per se a construction loan mortgage. And then what is wholesaling? Wholesaling is the assignment of a contract of a property, meaning the owner does an assignment of the contract to sell the home to through a go-between, and that would be the wholesaler or assigner or assignee. The assignee is the person that was assigned the, the transaction to thus then wholesale, aka assign the contract to a viable buyer, either for cash or a construction loan or conventional loan for that. What separates Joe the lender from other capital providers? Well, what I think what separates me from the rest of the herd is I'm a much more diversified in knowledge of various lending uh, areas, meaning residential lending, commercial lending, construction lending. Though I might not do it on a day-to-day -day basis, I've worked in no, all those different environments over the past 20 years. You know, I've done construction lending. I've done multifamily commercial lending. I've done residential lending, one through four, one through four units. I've done just about any type of area of lending and have closed on loans in those arenas, whether it's SBA, whether it's true commercial, mixed use and commercial. So having a conversation with me, I'm not going to be like, hey, I'll get back to you. I'll be able to give you some form of direction or clear, uh, somewhat of a clear answer. So, you know, you sift through some of the more, you know, get them into the right direction, my bank or somebody else that might be able to facilitate their loan scenario. I'm a source. Can you think of any stories of bootstrap commercial real estate developers who you work with that had a good deal with no money and were they able to get to the finish line? Well, there was a ton of them in 2008. And some of them went down for the count. And some of them were able to find angel investors to finish their projects. I mean, 2008 was, I hate to say, a bloodbath for commercial developers when it came to residential development. But some survived and made it through by really, you know, digging deep and, and finding the right investors. Also looking at refinancing and holding the properties instead of trying to sell them and make them into rentals. And some, a lot of them, some of the, the developments went right back to the banks and people picked them up for 30, 40, 50 cents on the dollar. So I got to see a lot of people in those situations, you know, 11, 12 years ago. You know what I mean? Yeah, have you seen anything lately? If anybody has gotten themselves in a distressed situation, there is so much money on the sideline right now to put into these transactions, whether equity or debt. I haven't seen anything in distress present itself to me in quite a while. It's been a pretty good run. How long would you say the run's been going on for? I mean, the run's been going on 2009-10 to present. It's run on a little bit over the summertime. But I tend to see a little more slowdown, but the rates are so good. So I'm getting calls, three, four calls a day on either refinance or purchasing because rates are in the three. And how long do these runs typically last? What's the length of a full real estate cycle? Well, that's a great question because when we were all in school, college, they tell you, tell you we were in a 10-year cycle. My opinion, we've been in three, fifth, five-year cycles. And the next five-year cycle is yet to come since the 08 crash. 
You know what I mean? I think we're past the five-year cycle. We're way past if you want to do it as a 10-year cycle. So there has to be some type of, you know, I don't want to call it a recession. That's do you say a correction? A correction in the inventory, yeah. In addition to being active in the lending space, do you also invest in real estate yourself? Yes, I do own multifamily in New Jersey and Philadelphia. I own some lots that I'm waiting some timing to develop multifamily properties on them. So I am transactional currently. I am shifting gears a little bit. I am working with a couple of people and looking at potentially larger projects in along the East Coast or certain areas in the Midwest for multifamily. These new projects, would you be more of a passive investor or still a GP? I'd probably be a general partner. What's the minimum amount of units that you buy on an investment property? The minimum on an investment property you have to put down is 25% on average. If it's owner-occupied, depending on the type of circumstance, whether it's conventional, it could be as low as 3% or as much as 25%, depending on if it's a one to four unit. So you would buy anything. I didn't know if you had a rule of thumb that said, I wouldn't buy under four units or I only buy X amount of units. Well, I mean, my most recent buy was a duplex in the Northeast in Philadelphia. I bought it for 85000 Renovation was ninety. Completed value is two eighty, with a cash, a gross rent collection of over three thousand dollars, and had a tax, ten-year tax evasion. That made sense to me. So, I mean, I bought it and doing quite well. I had tenants before they were even finished. When you're looking at properties to flip, what hidden values do you look for that other investors might overlook? Well, I would consider making changes to bedrooms especially in the Philadelphia market, expanding, if you can, going an additional floor, which takes permits and time, cost of money, and time you need to calculate. If it's in the New Jersey market, it's all about neighborhood, transportation, and location. You know, you're going to get a much more look at a twin in, say, Collinswood area, because it's so convenient to Paco and the train and Philadelphia, comparatively to Williamsburg. Okay, so two different types of buyers, two different types of, you know, needs for that buyer. How do you screen your tenants and what type of tenants do you typically avoid? We do a full background check. We just want to make sure with people that are rent, obviously rent for a reason most of the time, and want to see if there's certain things like eviction prior, you know, certain type of collections, what are out there that might be impacting their credit if there's a creditor concern. But we want to make sure that there's the right amount, sufficient amount of income, two to three times more than what the current rent would be. Is that gross or net income? That would be net per month. All right, Joe, we're going to switch over to networking. So why do you focus so much on networking? And where do you think you'd be in your life and career if you just went and punched the clock rather than taking the initiative throughout all these events? If I was going to punch the clock, we'll start with that first. I'd probably still be in my own business, and I'd probably be a cook. I'd probably be a chef. I have a culinary degree, and I cook pretty good, I've been told. And I'd probably do some type of you know, festivals and events with carts and trucks and do some type of unique cooking and things like that, because that's a passion of mine. Networking, your network is your net worth at the end of the day, to be able to 
put somebody in touch with somebody immediately for a circumstance or a service makes a viable impression on your customers. Again, like I want to consider myself like Poland Spring. You get that bottle of water, right? Wouldn't you love to go to Poland Spring and taste that water? Wouldn't that be a great environment? To, you know, I want to be that Poland Spring to people where they come to me. I'm the source of where it all begins. I get you the realtor. I get the inspector. I get you the plumber, the electrician, and I do your loan. And boom, all of a sudden, we're just all, you know, we're all got our all spoons in the pot, and it's all working out, stirring out real nice. Yeah, that's a nice alignment of interest. I'm sure it makes your clients feel great. No. Absolutely. And I'm working for a good bank. I work for a great bank. They've taken care of me over the past five years. You know, usually most loan officers only stay at a place for three years. I'm here till I need to be. I mean, that's, I think the bank is very supportive of my activities and my network, and they respect it, and I respect them. And I have good upper management, vice presidents. You know, I love working for the man. He's a good guy. And he's a book of information. So sometimes I don't know everything, and I confer on him. And, you know, it all works itself. And I'm able to give black and white answers. I get news back to you. It's not good or bad, but it's news. So when did you decide to start putting on your own events? Well, I met the love of my life about 10 years ago as of this past month. And I moved to the Philadelphia area. And how was I going to meet and greet people? In Philadelphia, I came to Philadelphia from Allentown, Pennsylvania, originally from North Jersey. Had no really direct contact with a couple people, putting on educational events, providing a piece of education or real estate for people to come, and talking about what I do for a living. And it's worked out. No, I've created an inbound marketing traffic campaign that I can't really see. I mean, it's this phone just keeps ringing. How well attended was your first event? Oh, I think we had about five or six people at a local coffee house. And I can tell you the last event I had this past Monday, I had 120 people at it. When did your events really start to take off? When I started marketing the event by subject, not by the organization. The organization is a component of the events, but the subject matter is most important to the attendee. They don't want to get out of work at 5, 5.30, race to somewhere unless the subject makes a difference in their business. Now, some of our listeners might be thinking about hosting their own events, or maybe they're procrastinating, scared, or don't know where to begin. Could you provide some advice for folks who want to get started with their own events and maybe things that they can do when they're first getting started? Yeah, I'd say set up yourself a very good constant contact. I'd work through sources such as bigger pockets, Eventbrite, and Facebook, and work them hard. You know, and collect your information and keep staying in touch with your contacts. When you get somebody's card, put it in your database. Don't throw it out. So we briefly touched on this. Considering your success in a wide range of ventures, you must be really efficient in managing your time. What systems do you use to manage your time or tips that our listeners can pick up? I use Podio. As a CRM, meaning a you know marketing software, I use Qualifier, which is a text messaging software. I use Eventbrite, which is an excellent event coordinating software, and then I use Excel for a lot of the other information. So it's, it's between those three and Constant Contact, of course. Constant Contact has been very good to me. It seems like you do a lot of work in Philly. Has the Opportunity Zone changed the game at all? 
the opportunity zone to me from a residential perspective has not as much as you would think. I don't think the residential investor really fully understands the capabilities in the opportunity zone or the commercial people to do. They're lagging behind the residential. So no, I'm not seeing any shift and change of mindset buying in an opportunity zone from a one through four perspective. That makes sense. But Joe, thanks for your time. Seriously, we really appreciate it. What's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you and find out more about the events you put on? 215-290-5108 is my direct cell. My email is J-S-C-O-R-E-S-E at firstrust.com. One T in the middle. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at bluecollaryields.com. For more episodes, you can search Blue Collar Yields on Apple Podcasts.